we start with the BC Green Party. The they got a new leader, Sonia First to now. Uh, she's been on the show already. She's been on uh, CKNW already. So let's check in with Adam Olson now, the other Green Party MLA in the legislature. Hi, Adam. Mike, thanks for having me this morning. Thanks a lot for coming on. So you've got a new leader there, Sonia Furstenau, and everyone is talking about a new election, an election possible in, in British Columbia. She's made her position very clear. She doesn't think there should be an election in BC. What do you think? Yeah, I completely agree. I think, you know, I served as the party's interim leader throughout uh, the past number of uh, months and through the, the most recent number of weeks been asked about this. Uh, very clear uh, that British Columbians... Uh, uh, have been telling us that they don't want an election that focuses on our children heading back to school, our teachers uh, trying to make the best uh, out of a really bad situation here with COVID-19 as numbers start to increase. Uh, not the time for uh, political parties to be uh, looking out for their interests, very much uh, the time for governing. What, what is your read on this thing? I mean, you've, you talked to people on the other, in the other party there in the NDP. I'm, I'm sure you've been talking behind the scenes to people. What's your kind of take or read on this? Is Horgan, Horgan going to do this? Well, I mean, certainly there's only uh, one person uh, in this province right now that has had the opportunity to shut the conversation down. Um, yeah. It's been asked numerous times by your colleagues uh, through, through on his, you know, Wednesday press release uh, pr- uh, press meetings um, for the last number of weeks. And um, certainly uh, could have shut it down, could have given British Columbians uh, the peace that they needed in order to, to focus on the, the very important uh, things that British Columbians are focused on. Uh, getting back to work, getting their kids back to school, trying to figure out how yeah. uh, to deal with uh, the, the growing challenges that we have with the potential of a second wave. That right. hasn't happened. So, you know, it's, it's concerning. Okay, speaking to Green Party MLA, Adam Olson, you guys have a deal with the NDP <laughs> to put them into government. And I just took another, a fresh look at the agreement last night. And I'm looking at one particular line here. It says, the leader of the New Democrats will not request a dissolution of the legislature during the term of this agreement. The term of the agreement is until the next scheduled election in the fall of 2021. So if he does do this, if he does call an election, if he goes to the lieutenant governor, asks for dissolution of the, of the legislature and goes to an election, he's breaking the deal, right? Yeah, I don't even know if you need to phrase that as a question. It's just a statement. <laughs> uh, it's just the fact. Uh, the, the reality of it is is that when we uh, sat down for the confidence and supply agreement, uh, 44 members of the legislature signed that agreement, Mike, and uh, it's not was not just an agreement between two leaders uh, representing their political parties. It was a, right. an agreement signed by all members of the NDP and all members of the Green Caucus, now two members of the Green Caucus and an independent. And uh, and the, the deal was and, and the, the goal was uh, to be the most successful minority government in the history of our country. We've done that for the last three years. We've shown stability. We've shown certainty. And the goal was to get it to uh, the election date in, in October. Right. In fact, we deliberately moved in, in through legislation the fixed election date to October uh, of 2021 in order to ensure that we didn't have budgets that were meaningless uh, right. being brought forward. Right. So I yeah. think you know it was it was a deliberate act in our in our agreement to to make it to the end because we believed that we could show British Columbians that we could set politics aside and govern. Okay, so if he does do this, if he does break the deal and he does do this, what does that say about Horgan? Is that does that what should that say to the people of British Columbia? If you can't tr- can't trust this guy to keep this agreement, should we trust him on anything else? I mean, how much of how how egregious would that be in your mind if he does this? 
Well, like, look, I don't know that it matters much how egregious it is in my mind. I would leave it up to British Columbians to, to determine, you know, f- for their own comfort levels, uh, what that yeah. says to them. You know, I, I think, yeah. you know, there's, there's, uh, there's a, a long history in this country of, of making treaties, of making deals, of making agreements. And, uh, and the experience has been that, that, uh, that not many of them have been kept. And so I think that it's important for British Columbians to consider that question that you just asked, Mike, very, very closely. How important is it to British Columbians that, you know, the, the, the word can be kept? One of the things that we're going to hear from Horgan, and we already hear him hinting at this, and some people in the, in the NDP government also are saying this behind the scenes, is that the agreement that Horgan signed with you guys to put him into the premier's office really should be moot and void at this point because it's three years on you've accomplished most of what you set out to accomplish under the deal and also that you guys are not really that reliable a partner anymore because you voted against a couple of government bills in the last session and you moved an amendment to another bill that the ndp didn't like should should that void the deal so look let's be very very clear the items that were in the confidence and supply agreement were the basis of a of a of a relationship to get us moving. There were a bunch of uh, policy areas that we agreed on in the last election, and we decided to put those in the agreement as the, be- as the beginning steps of, of building a relationship between two political parties. Um, there, is, there is nothing to suggest that that necessarily be the end. In fact, the most important part of the confidence and supply agreement was that it gave British Columbia an operating government. And, it, and that, yeah. is the, that is the most important part of it, is that it's the agreement that put Mr. Horgan in the office that he holds right now. It, it is the agreement that gives him the opportunity to be speculating and making so-called decisions about snap elections, which he shouldn't yeah. be considering. Okay, last That's question. the most important piece. I, I, I think that it's yeah. important to, to, to acknowledge the last two points that you made. Yeah. We yeah. did not vote against two government bills. We raised very serious concerns that were raised by Indigenous leaders, the coroner, the yeah. ch- child uh, representative of children and families, about uh, bills that did not receive the level of consultation that were required. And so we said, bring these back in the fall. Government apparently had no interest in bringing them back in the fall. So okay. to, to characterize that as us voting against their legislation is just incorrect. Well, when and also, and also, COVID- but also, well, anyway, you, there's nothing in the deal that says you got to support every single government bill 100%. that they put forward, anyways. So l- let me ask you this last question for you. Do you, I obviously, Horgan is looking at the opinion polls. He likes what he sees. He sees a big lead for the NDP. He, he sees over the Liberals. Um, this is a power grab if, if he goes for it because he just sees it, the timing of it. This is the opportunity to seize a majority power. Do you think that that would backfire on him if he, if he does it? Again, I'm going to leave that up to British Columbians. British Columbians gave us the legislature that we're operating in today in the last election through making decisions on their ballot. Uh, I trust uh, the, the will of British Columbians. That's the reason why I've, I've stood so strongly with the confidence and supply agreement, because I felt that uh, we had to make the best out of a, out of a, a very tough situation after the last election. Um, I, I think that, you know, I'm hearing a lot of British Columbians who are saying very similar things to what you're saying. Uh, and I would just suggest that now is the time for us to be governing, not playing partisan politics and looking out for our own political interests. That's what British Columbians really despise about about politics, okay. is when politicians start looking out for their own interests, 
I think that's the reason why the polling numbers are so high is because during the pandemic, we've frankly been looking out for the interests of British Columbians, and until very recently, that's changed. Thanks a lot for coming on. Thank you. All right, welcome back to the show as we continue talking about the potential for a provincial election in British Columbia. You heard that clip I played earlier from Premier John Horgan. He was asked again yesterday, point blank, will you call an election this fall? He kind of ducked and dodged, bobbed and weaved on that one. Lots of signs out there that this is what the New Democrats want to do. They want to snap election. They're way ahead in the opinion polls right now. Man, they've got to just be drooling looking at those polling numbers, thinking we go to an election right now, we come back with with a majority government. Look what just happened in New Brunswick. Same thing. They rolled the dice there. Minority government, conservatives in power, rolled the dice on a snap election call. Conservatives won a majority yesterday in New Brunswick. John Horgan could be thinking, man, I can pull off the same trick here. Have a listen to this now, the, talking about the opinion polls. You're going to hear Shachi Curl here, a very fine pollster. This is a, a global BC story by Richard Zussman on the potential for a snap election in BC. Have a listen. If there were an election held in BC today, it looks like it would be a fairly comfortable majority for the NDP. The obvious X factor is the pandemic, and whether voters would punish Horgan for forcing an election in the midst of dealing with rising cases of COVID-19 and more British Columbians in hospital with the virus. If British Columbians feel like this is frivolous, it's not necessary, it's not what people want right now, then they can punish a government for doing what they think is is a politically motivated, self-interested move. Yeah, I've seen it happen before. I've seen these type of moves backfire. Sometimes the polls are wrong. Let's check in now with my next guest, Ujjal Desange, the former leader of the provincial NDP, the former premier of British Columbia, former liberal MP. I'm very pleased to welcome him. Ujjal, thanks a lot for doing this. Good to be with you. Okay, I know uh, you're keeping an eye on this, and we're, we talked a little bit the other day about it. What are your thoughts on the potential for John Horgan here to call a snap election here in British Columbia? Do you think that could backfire on him? Well, the clips you just played from um, from those two individuals, um, I think, summed up um, what could what could happen. Obviously, it's natural for politicians to feel greedy at times and say, you know, polls are good. I should go to uh, a campaign. Uh, but you have uh, two things uh, that are working against that, and one is the law that the uh, that the government has already passed that the election should be in October next year, and the second, of course, is the power sharing agreement, which is still in place with the Greens, and the third, which is the most unpredictable now, uh, is the pandemic, uh, and you know one shouldn't pr- uh, compare it so quickly uh, to New Brunswick because New Brunswick has uh, cases that you could count on your fingertips. Uh, whereas in BC, um, you know, we have cases in the range of 110, 120 every day now. They've gone up from before. Um, and, you know, in, in view of what Dr. Henry has said, that we this is time to step back, we need to step back um, for a possible second wave. Um, you know, that doesn't jive with going forward with an election campaign, at least not not in my mind and may not be in people's mind. But, you know, who knows? I mean, if Premier calls the election, he may come back with the majority. Uh, He may be punished, too. 
Yeah. Okay, really interesting points that you raised there. When you talk about the law in British Columbia for a fixed election date, yeah, you're right. The next election is scheduled for October of 2021. But under under the law and conventions of our province, too, that does not preclude, preclude the premier from going to the lieutenant governor and saying, look, I need an early election call. And I suspect if he did that, she would say, go ahead. Your thoughts? Well, well, I mean that—that's the convention, and yeah. and uh, and and the um, lieutenant governor may, in fact, say yes. Yeah. You have the right to call an election, but you have these factors um, of of the um, the law, of the power sharing agreement, and then of the pandemic, which is uh, quite uncertain at this time. Particularly, the schools have just reopened. We don't know what's going to happen in other places where schools have opened. Uh, people are now talking about a possible full lockdown again um, in places like Ontario. Uh, and, and the federal government, federal health minister, just was talking about a full lockdown if the cases keep going up as they are now. So, you know, these all of these things are unpredictable. And uh, right now the numbers are good for, for Premier Horgan. And, uh, you know, if I were him, I'd be uh, raring to go. But at the same time... <laughs> you got to look at the pandemic and, you know, people might react very differently because we're all worried. We're all sitting in our homes. We're trying to actually protect ourselves from the pandemic. If we have to deal with one more thing, which is the election campaign and uh, go vote and uh, people might say it was absolutely unnecessary at this point. Nobody was defeating him. There is no emergency on the on the horizon that he can't deal with. So I think that, uh, you know, it's it's a gamble. Okay, speaking to former BC Premier Ujjal Dasanj, you just said something interesting there that if it was you, if you were in Horgan's place right now, you'd be raring to go. So are, do you mean to say if you were in the same position as Horgan right now, you'd be you'd be dropping the writ? You'd be calling in the election yourself? What would no, you do? I, no, no, I'd be feeling the raring okay, to go. Okay, <laughs> but, but, but I'll also be looking at everything else. Yeah. What would you do? Would you do it? Um. You know, because of the public opprobrium that I might face, I wouldn't do it. Because uh-huh. I think it's so important to recognize that the pandemic is nothing like anything that we've ever seen in our lifetime. Right. And and people are worried. People are, have no jobs. People are suffering. Right in the middle of, uh, middle of it, without sensing an emergency, without sensing the need for an election, yeah. without the obvious need for an election, if one drops the rate, he might he might people might punish him yeah and i think that's an interesting uh contrast with new brunswick as well where we saw the conservatives win a majority yesterday in in that election there that minority government in new brunswick was a a pretty fragile operating agreement there um so i think he had a better case to to go to the public with to get a new mandate in british columbia the minority government seems to be working pretty well he's passed every single confidence vote that's come in front of the legislature every single budget has passed he's had a stable government for three years so there's no reason to do it and and the government has done well there's no question you know with a few fumbles the government has generally done well and and therefore uh, people might say, you know, where was the need for an election? Where is the right. emergency? What, what is preventing him from governing? And if 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 that becomes the issue, pe- people might uh, punish him. Okay, speaking to former BC Premier Ujjal Dasanjh, you mentioned that there's this power-sharing agreement with the BC Green Party that is still in effect. And when you take a look at 
the wording of that agreement. I know you're a lawyer, and when I take a look at the agreement, I don't see a whole lot of wriggle room there because it says right there, I will not, the, the premier agrees not to go and ask for a dissolution of the legislature. He will not call an election. So, you know, well, what, what are your well, thoughts? Absolutely. I mean, if, if you add that, I will not call an election unless I'm defeated. Right. Uh, and and you add that to the uh, proviso in the um, in the legislation that says that the election has to be uh, now in 2021. Uh, I think the premier doesn't have a logical case for uh, an election, except that he's doing well in the polls, and that's always important for politicians. Any politician. Okay, you've been in the highest office in the land here in British Columbia yourself as a as a former premier. Can can you give me any insight on how? these type of discussions and decisions are are made like i get the impression that there's a very small circle of advisors around horgan they're probably poring over opinion pollings they probably got a constitutional opinion on whether they can do this and trying to calculate the public reaction if he does pull the pin on it so what what do you think is being discussed there behind the scenes as he makes this big decision well i think that 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 you know any pollster would tell the premier that uh, the the polls may be soft um, because of the pandemic. They can turn on a dime. And uh, and I think that's a big concern. And I'm sure they're pouring over the polls and thinking about what might happen in that regard. They're also, um, the, the premier is probably uh, be consulting the cabinet, not in a formal sense, but in an informal sense, perhaps, uh, because it's ultimately it's the premier's call to call an election. And the premier would be relying mainly on um, his closest ministers, uh, most important ministers in cabinet for consultation and uh, for his advisors. Um, and, and ultimately, it would be his call to make. Okay, I'm also wondering about just how risky this might be, and you touched on this briefly with the pandemic numbers that we're seeing in British Columbia, over 100 cases a day now. I think it makes it a lot tougher for Horgan to pull the pin on an election because of that. And there's a very sort of narrow window here for him to do this. Like, if he's going to do this, I think he's got to do it in the next couple of weeks. And who knows? Things become unpredictable after that, don't they? Once an election starts, you don't know what's going to happen. Something unforeseen could happen. What, well, you, you don't know how the pandemic is going to behave, right, um, right. particularly with the schools. Uh, you know, I have six grandchildren at schools. Two of them are not going to school because their parents have stopped them because they're worried. And uh, if if there are people in my you know large household worried, I'm sure people are worried all over the province. And if and if something goes um, 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 haywire in terms of the pandemic in the schools, um, you know, the premier could lose the election. And and I think that that's that's a big worry. And I mean, I suspected that when they were making plans for the reopening of the schools, I suspected then that they were eager to call an election. And um, and so my suspicion was correct. But uh, I I think Mm. that uh, people might say Premier Horgan has been good. He's been great in terms of governing the province. But, you know, people might turn and say this is very unwise. They might say that. Okay, why do you think that the planned, the, the school reopening plan contained a clue there of a possible election call? Why do you think that? Because in the way the plans were announced, uh, BCT, oh. BCTF was on, on, you know, offside. And, uh, and usually, um, you know, they are allies of the government, allies of the NDP. And uh, in fact, in their haste to announce the plans, uh, 
uh, you know, somehow, uh, I didn't, I haven't looked at all the details, but the BCTF was offside, and they're still, in a sense, they're still offside because they're critical, because they're saying that, you know, there are proper plans aren't in place, there are rooms where there's no ventilation, there's, you know, there's no mandatory masking ordered in the schools by the province. Um, it's left up to individual school boards, and school boards don't have the resources. And, and I just heard Dr. Bonnie Henry say that if, you know, you, you can't, you have to shut the windows because of the smoke outside, and, and you, uh, you depend on ventilators or, or air conditioners or something of that sort, if you can lay your hands on it. You know, it, that kind of haphazard response uh, to schools uh, could play into uh, their loss of election if the if the cases rise uh, slightly, if okay. there's an uptick. Okay, last question for you. If, if John Horgan was to pick up the phone and call you today and say, hey, you're a former premier, maybe ask you for a little advice, what would you tell him to do? Well, I would say to him he should be worried about it. Thank you for coming on today. All right, welcome back to the show. My next guest is Aaron O'Toole. He's the new leader of the Federal Conservative Party. He's the leader of the official opposition in the House of Commons. I'm pleased to welcome him back to the show. Thanks for coming on. Great to be back, Mike. Yeah, I appreciate it a lot. Congratulations on your victory in, in the leadership race. How did, how did you win this job? Because I guess at the start, Peter McKay was seen by a lot of people, I guess, as the betting favorite, kind of the big name. How did you pull this off, do you think? Well, what I've done since I joined the military at 18, hard work and uh, building a great team and relying on that team and a plan. And we just executed and we ignored some of the, the headlines in the coronation language and we worked harder and we're going to do the same same thing to beat Justin Trudeau. Do you, do you think that uh, social conservatives in the party played a role in, in your victory? Like maybe they came over to you on a second ballot because they didn't like McKay? I think there was a whole range of things on why various members of the party supported me, either first, second. Um, I, look, you know, I did get support from social conservatives. They're an important part of, of, our, of our movement. But yeah. I got that through building respect because I was the most sort of moderate on, on social issues. But um, we also had a respectful relationship. My big win was in Quebec, which is kind of the most socially uh, progressive province out of the, out of the mix. So I don't think you can really say one single thing did it. It was growing support across the whole country. We had great great support from from BC to to Newfoundland, Labrador. Uh, Peter cleaned our clock in Nova Scotia, of course, but uh, we did very well everywhere else. Okay, you prepared for the attacks from the Liberals, though, trying to paint you as like an extremist. Oh, it's already started. You know, that's yeah. that's all they've got. You know, they they don't want to actually admit that a month before they even responded to COVID. I put forward a plan that had the government listened to, we probably would have had thousands of fewer community spread cases. They were two months, Mike, slow yeah. in closing the border. They shut down the the virus uh, and the spread warning system that Canada had in place. They wore it down, and three different ministers ignored warnings in January. So the more people will look at this as we as we are preparing for a second wave, the yeah. federal government failed, and it was really the provinces that had to show leadership because the flights from China, Iran, and even Italy were bringing community spread cases that the provinces then had to deal with. Let, let me ask you about a few stories in the news today. And that, uh, what about the aluminum fight with the, with the Trump the Trump uh, administration south of the border? Canada expected to retaliate against uh, U.S. tariffs on on aluminum. Do you think Canada? Do you think the uh, Trudeau government will be tough enough in this fight? Well, they've failed for many years on these things. I'm on the record for many years. I did trade as a lawyer. Uh, remember, 
the Trudeau government, in negotiating NAFTA, ignored the threat of steel and aluminum tariffs. We were proposing working with the U.S. on security issues to be exempt. And instead of putting trade issues like the Kitimat smelter and the Saguenay smelter forward, Trudeau's agenda for NAFTA, remember it was a climate change, indigenous reconciliation gender, he tried to make it part of his brand as opposed to fighting for Canadian interests like a softwood lumber deal and, and auto and steel. So this is all coming home to roost. Anytime you have to retaliate, it means you failed in the first negotiation. And yeah, Ms. You- Freeland has failed repeatedly. And look, I couldn't even get calls returned from her when we were trying to work under a so-called Team Canada approach. So it's time that Canada had a serious government again that wasn't about tweeting things and trying to, to, to get magazine covers. It's about standing up for working families, and that's what I'm going to be doing. Let me, let me ask you about election timing. Here in British Columbia, we're on high alert for a potential snap election, and Trudeau was asked the other day about the potential for a fall election federally, and I'll play this clip for you to see what you think. Here is Trudeau. I have been very clear. The government has no interest in seeing an election this fall. We know that there's still an awful lot of hardship that Canadians are going through. There's still real concerns about a potential second wave of COVID-19. Okay, are you buying that, or are you concerned that maybe he might pull the trigger on his snap election call at some point? It's quite funny, Mike, because he has planned over the next few weeks, we're we're counting about five confidence votes that he is forcing. He said he would never prorogue Parliament to avoid tough questions. He, He promised that a few years ago. Why did he prorogue Parliament? To avoid the tough questions from Pierre Polyev and Michael Barrett and some of our MPs at Committee on the We Charity. Uh, his finance minister has already resigned for the ethical scandal. Mr. Trudeau, his whole family is implicated in it. Um, you know, another minister, Minister Chagger, is implicated in it. <laughs> they, they basically called a timeout to avoid tough questions. Now he has a throne speech right. that is basically being used to put a bunch of confidence votes into Parliament, and he's suppressed Parliament for the last number of months. So. Uh, Forgive me when I don't believe his, his, his sincerity that they don't want election. This is all about avoiding accountability for their own ethical scandals and the fact that they have no plan post-SERP. So as some of these emergency response benefits are rolling down, where is yeah. the plan for employment? Where is the softwood lumber deal? Where is the ability to get the country working? As I said, I've seen more leadership provincially than I have seen federally throughout this entire crisis. Okay, speaking to federal conservative leader Aaron O'Toole, speaking of the economic plan for the country you mentioned, there is a throne speech next week. Let me play this for you. This is Christy Freeland, the new finance minister here, and here she is commenting on the economic plan for Canada going forward to get your thoughts on it. The restart of our economy needs to be green. It also needs to be equitable. It needs to be inclusive. And... We need to focus very much on jobs and growth. Okay, when she talks about jobs and growth there at the end, I know you probably like hearing that, but when she talks about a plan that has to be green, equitable, and inclusive, does that concern you at all? Same thing they did, Mike, with NAFTA. Remember, it was hashtags and things that weren't even in the the trade agreement. They're going to do this again. The green I would like to see is the paychecks in Canadians' pockets. There's about a million people out of work uh, post-SERB because they messed up the wage subsidy. Remember, they had to bring two emergency bills to Parliament 
um, because they weren't saving enough jobs because the wage subsidy at first was only 10%. So employers shed people to put them on the CERB. The Liberals made the challenge more difficult. And now they're going to do their ideological stuff. You know, they don't like that messy uh, uh, aluminum plant in, in Kitimat. They don't support those workers, even though our aluminum is the greenest in the world. There's some green. There's also green in a softwood lumber deal. We have the highest forestry standards in the world. And our oil and gas, the highest produced ethically indigenous engagement, environmental mitigation in the world. So yeah. the ideological approach of Ms. Freeland and Mr. Trudeau has hurt this country. It's divided this country. That's what led to the Wexit movement. Post, mm. Post-COVID wave one, we need people working. We don't need this ideological do you, approach to everything. Do you think that, speaking of the ideological stuff, do you support the Canada Recovery Benefit Program they, they brought in to replace the CERB? Because I've already heard some people saying that this is maybe the thin edge of a wedge for a universal basic income in Canada. Do you think that's what's coming? This is what some people are suggesting will be in the throne speech. I think the Liberals are going to try and use as much... Uh, taxpayer money to sort of bribe people to not look at the real underlying risks we have to our long-term prosperity. The parliamentary budget officer has said, if Trudeau continues in this fashion, there's only two more years until we hit the fiscal wall. And the fiscal wall means the Liberals will cut health care transfers to the provinces, just like they did before. They will cut uh, benefits. Old age security, for example, is a benefit that's paid for out of government revenues. And if government revenues are dropping and fiscal yeah. capacity is dropping, seniors are at risk, families are at risk. But what, 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 would you, at risk. What, what would you cut? You've promised to balance the budget within, what, 10 years? I mean, the deficit is so massive, though, you're going to have to cut a lot. What would you cut to balance the budget? No, what I said was we have to use a decade-long approach to get our fiscal program in order. I didn't say I'm setting a date 10 years from now. What I said is we have to reduce the spending and make sure that any government assistance is going to to industries that are held back specifically from the pandemic. You know, the fact that billions were spent to have students not work when we could have spent a fraction of that, paid them to work for small businesses and help save small businesses, just showed how ideological and out of touch the Trudeau government is. There are small businesses, nonprofits, charities, universities, with all their budgets underwater right now, and they were paying people not to work. And so if that continues, it erodes our fiscal capacity long-term as a country, because if we're not growing our economy and employing people, how are we ever going to tackle some of the budget issues. Last question for you. My guest is Conservative leader Aaron O'Toole. You had a meeting this week with uh, the Quebec Premier Francois Legault, and you said that the Energy East pipeline is not on the table as a priority for you as Prime Minister. Why is it not on the table? I mean, where's uh, don't we need that pipeline in eastern Canada? That was misreported, Mike. In fact, the reporter said Energy East is not on the table, so what are you going to do about getting products to market. If you look at exactly what I said, we need to get the best in the world price for a finite Canadian resource. Right now, the projects that are in uh, in various stages of completion are Trans Mountain Keystone. I also think Northern Gateway as a a leading Indigenous program where they were one-third equity owners is great. The private sector uh, abandoned Energy East. I've been supportive 
of the only other potential uh, pipeline in the east called Gazio Duke Quebec through northern Quebec to the Saguenay. Any of these mechanisms that can help us get a better price for Canadian resources, we should be doing because this loss of revenue is a loss of tax dollars to help in the COVID recovery. So I'm going to be very much championing Canadian resources as as the most ethical and and the best in the world. And, um, you know, in in Quebec, in Montreal specifically, there's a real anti-pipeline sentiment. But part of what I'm doing is trying to educate more Canadians on on the fact that these are good for our economy and any drop of Canadian energy is replaced by energy by bad actors like Saudi Arabia, Venezuela, or Russia. So what should the world do? The free world should be using Canadian resources. Thank you for coming on today. Real pleasure, Mike. Thank you. I I appreciate it a lot. As Conservative leader Aaron O'Toole... Let's talk about Mountain Equipment Co-op now, and that was an announcement yesterday that uh, surprised and saddened a lot of people that Mountain Equipment Co-op, it's the largest consumer cooperative in Canada, over 5 million members, and this thing is kind of like a a crown jewel in a lot of ways for British Columbia and and Vancouver, founded in the 1970s by four people from the UBC Outdoor Club, and it grew into the largest co-op in Canada, 5 million members. But it had been struggling lately. The announcement yesterday from the board of directors there at Mountain Equipment Co-op that the company is being sold to private investors out of Los Angeles. Yeah, that's a sad day, but the fight is on to reverse this sale. Phone me on it now and tell me what you think. If you shop at Mountain Equipment Co-op, would you continue shopping there? If this sale goes through to American interests, what do you think went wrong there? Let's take a few calls on it. So many people enjoy shopping at this store, including myself. So phone me and tell me what you think. 604-280-9898 is the number. 604-280-9898, star 9898 on your cell. Just as we get some calls lined up, let me check in with Michael Roy now. He has started a petition online to try and reverse this sale. Michael, thank you for coming on. My pleasure. Okay, I'm taking Michael, I'm taking a look at your uh, petition on change.org. You've got over 7,000 signatures here uh, to stop this sale of Mountain Equipment Co-op. Tell me why you started the petition. Well, I was angry, and when I heard last night that uh, uh, Canada's largest co-op was going to be sold to a private interest, uh, I, I built uh, this petition at savemec.ca. Right now, 10 people a minute are adding their names, because uh, I'm hearing from a lot of people, they're really angry that members weren't consulted, that members weren't brought in to help solve some of the financial problems. Uh, Crown Mountain Equipment is really a, a special Canadian institution that so many people, so many outdoors folks, uh, rely on for uh, their equipment and for community, and we're really disappointed that the board made this decision behind closed doors. Yeah, how long have you been a member there? Uh, I was thinking about this last night. I think I joined in 1997, so 23 wow. years. Wow, yeah, there's a lot of people can trace this back like decades uh, at Mountain Equipment Co-op, and it is a, it is a sad uh, sad day and a sad announcement. Did that surprise you yesterday? I mean, we knew that we knew the company was in trouble. They were going through tough times. Would that did that surprise you yesterday to hear that news? It was surprising to me that the group who got this company into trouble by making decisions behind closed doors think that, that, that more uh, secret decisions are going to get it out of trouble. They needed to engage the 5.4 million members who are the backbone of Mountain Equipment uh, and talk about what a solution looks like. Uh, Mountain Equipment is an amazing company with an amazing team, and uh, the members want to be a part of saving it. 
uh, and we're hoping it's not too late to do that. Okay, could it be too late, though? I wonder if the train has already left the station. Have you got any opinions on whether this can be stopped at this point? You know, it might have, and I'm, I'm far from a legal expert, but we're hoping yeah. that some pressure on the board and maybe asking the minister responsible for co-ops in B.C. to uh, investigate whether this is even permitted uh, might put some pressure on them. Uh, but we yeah. want to be engaged in a dialogue about the future of mountain equipment, uh, not just told that, we, that our uh, beloved co-op has been sold off to U.S. Yeah. interests. Maybe they should have been listening to the grassroots members of this uh, co-op uh, before they got into this kind of a jam, because you could sort of see these problems coming. I think maybe mountain equipment co-op kind of bit off more than they could chew and a corporate strategy expanding too quickly. I mean, what do you think went wrong there? How did they get into trouble? I think the mix of exception along with the fact that we're in the Amazon era. Everybody is competing yeah. in a brand new playing field. Uh, but I think it's not too late for the company to pivot. And, you know, if that means restructuring, if that means making changes, let's engage in a process to do that and keep this uh, a, a, a national treasure as Canada's largest co-op and not just sell it off to be sold for parts by uh, a U.S. equity firm. Okay, Michael, um, good luck with the petition. If people want to know, where, what's that website address again? People can sign at savemec.ca. All right, thanks for coming on. Thanks so much. All right, Michael Roy, he started that petition to try and stop this sale of Mountain Equipment Co-op. I'm not sure there's time to do that now, but uh, he's got it going over 7,000 signatures on there right now. 604-280-9898 is the number to call. Call me and tell me your thoughts on this Mountain Equipment Co-op deal. Star 9898 on your cell. Let's uh, take a few calls right now. Frank in Vancouver. Hi, Frank. Hey, how you doing? I'm good. What do you think? You know, I really enjoy shopping at Mountain Equipment Co-op, but this doesn't surprise me. Um, You know, their return policy is so liberal. Like, you know, I know many people, not well, but, uh, you know, many people that, you know, they would buy stuff, go use it camping, then return it. And, you know, they can sit there, you know, and say, well, that doesn't affect the the bottom line. But over a number of years, you know... Like 20% of their stuff was, 25% of their stuff was probably returned. You could literally return something a year later. Uh, and ha- I mean, it was, you just can't operate uh, a functional, profitable business, uh, you know, doing that. And, you know, some of the cu- a lot of the customers have the blame, you know. Huh. You know okay, that's, a, that's you know, interesting. They'll, they'll so, buy things, they'll yeah. go camping, they'll return it, uh, you know, after they go camping. And with the excuse, oh, it wasn't working for me. I go, well, how do you expect a, you know, a company to stay in business when you do that? Okay, Frank, thanks a lot for that. That's an interesting point. Um, appreciate the call. Doug in Surrey, squeeze in one more. you got to go fast, Doug. Oh, Mike, I Hi. remember when they said that this was uh, started up when people were buying off of REI down stateside, and something tells me that REI has seen the market that's sitting up here. It's a sweetheart deal with REI. We'll become a branch office of REI. They're sitting in Bellingham right now. They're what like is our, what is our, what is REI? What is that? Recreation Equipment Incorporated or something, but they're, oh, okay. they're sitting right in Bellingham. They're likely drooling over this because all of a sudden mm. they got this fast, huge market 40 miles up the highway from Bellingham. They're okay. like a guy, well, you know, we won't get into the gross parts of it, but like they're, they're just looking at, at BC and all the rest of it. And our cheap Canadian buck, they're just drooling. They can, okay. they can swim in it. All right. Thanks for the, thanks for the call. <laughs>